0: Welcome to Curious and Candid, conversations with those in pursuit of more. Today's guest is a depth therapist and somatic leadership coach. Today's guest is Nadia Brackett. Nadia, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Clinton. Thank you for
0: having me. You are very welcome, uh, Nadia. I'm really looking forward to uh, chopping, chopping it up with you and having a great conversation, learning more about your, uh, your history and your story. Um, but before we kind of move in that direction, I've got uh, four questions. I call the conversation uh, starter questions, just to kind of get the conversational ball rolling, so to speak. Um, these are four questions I like to ask all of my guests. Uh, so the first one uh, that I have for you is how do you start your day? Is there any specific routine or ritual that you like to stick to on most mornings and on most days? Yeah, that's such a good question. So I feel like
1: I've always struggled with routine and ritual. Well, I'll say I struggled with routine before I found out the beauty of ritual. Let's let's say that. Um, but over the last couple years, I have been ritualizing more and so, anything that I do in the morning that is routine, like just say like in the morning, I drink lemon water. Right. But there's something so magical about that lemon water that it's like not just routine. It is ritual. Right. So I really cherish everything in the morning. Like when I wake up, it is how do I connect with myself? And so that can sometimes look like pulling a tarot card or uh, pulling an Oracle card or doing something to connect with myself. But I have always struggled with movement. And that was my goal of 2023 is like, move your freaking body, Nadia, you have a body, you need to move it. (laughs) Uh, And so over this last year, I've really gotten into Pilates. And now if I don't start my morning with a Pilates reformer class, I don't feel like myself. So I would say that is the one thing that is just a non-negotiable these days, which is very fascinating and fun, given that I never really explored movement
0: until my mid-twenties. Okay, now I w- I want you to give your, your uh, take or perspective on the difference between routine and ritual, because you kind of like, alluded to, there is a difference, right? At least from your perspective. So just even for my own sake, I'm curious, like, uh, I mean, obviously, there are two different words. And, and I understand they are two different things. But from your perspective, what's the difference between routine and uh, ritual? Mm, That's such a good question. So to me,
1: ritual is finding the magic in the mundane right? We live these lives where we do have to kind of do these same things every day. We do have to have a routine. And that can feel monotonous, that can feel boring, that can we. it can make us feel frustrated or bitter, right? And it's finding the, those little magical moments where you can connect with yourself. Uh, it's It's an energetic shift. And so where I used to feel annoyed or frustrated that I would have to do something in order to have the life I want now it's like I get to do that I'm going to connect with myself in this moment I'm going to feel the magic of this mundane monotonous thing as best as I can right
0: excellent okay um one other thing I want to pull out of what you just kind of discussed uh is uh you know the the movement aspect of kind of what is you coined non-negotiable for you now, uh, in the morning, or at least, uh, at some point in your day. So, uh, talk to me a little bit about why movement was a focus of yours in 2023. And, uh, why do you feel like movement, uh, now, uh, when you don't have that movement in your life, uh, makes you not feel like yourself, as you mentioned.
1: Mm, yeah. You know, I've been a therapist for four years and I have been an explorer of the psyche for so long. Right. And, it, and it's like, as somebody who's a therapist and does all of this work, talking with people and exploring the depths of the mind and the, in the body and the soul in a different way. It's like, we're still sitting in a seat. <laughs> we're still, you know, focusing so much on this person that's right in front of us that, as as much as we are body-based practitioners as therapists, most of us, or as though we try to be, it's like we can forget that we have bodies. And there's so much energy in our bodies that get bottled up. And especially as a therapist who is holding so much space for people every day, I never realized how much I was holding until I started to move my body. And it just felt like a pressure valve release. It was like, oh, I get to discharge all the energy that's not mine and come home to myself every day so that I am a really clear vessel. And, you know, we all have that monkey mind. We all have that anxiety brain. We all have a nervous system that is constantly doing things and scanning for threats. And it's like, if we can just connect with our bodies, it's like, we get to really connect with our true essence. And it gives us this this grounding, this foundation, this balance to go into our days as our true selves, not just like completely bottled up. Mm. Or that's my perspective, at least. I know you're into movement. How do you feel about that?
0: Uh, I mean, I, I I'm not going to get too much on my soapbox, but uh, when you were sharing uh, your perspective with that Nadia, the thing that was kind of uh, popping up in my mind is that in order for us as human beings to to, to to show up as the, the best version of ourselves each and every day. Some sort of movement needs to be incorporated within each day because I'm a firm believer that movement is within our DNA. Uh, I believe that we were made to move. Again, movement is in our DNA. And if we are not moving our body in, in, in some way on a regular, consistent basis, we're, we're missing out on a huge... Uh, you know, component of this human experience on Earth. So that's kind of like my quick, yeah. little, short version of. <laughs> so. We're here. We're here for it. Right. Yeah. So, um. All right. Love it. Now, uh, I would like to know. And and this may be this can be a difficult question for some people. So the next question is, what's your favorite book, uh, and or podcast? Now. Please do not feel like you have to limit, uh, you know, this question to just one book or one podcast. If you've got five favorite books or 10 favorite books, you share them with us, uh, however you want to take that. But I would like to know if you do listen to podcasts, I would love to have a favorite book and a favorite podcast if you are a podcast uh, consumer.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to go with what my intuition is bringing up first with both of those questions. So my favorite book is Women Who Run With the Wolves by by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Uh, I've read this book a multitude of times and every single time that I read it, I learn something new. Uh, If you haven't read it and you identify as female, it's like a non-negotiable. It's really about getting into the myth of the wild woman archetype that exists inside all of us. So that's my favorite book and favorite podcast. I really love Esther Perel's Where Should We Begin? Uh, This is a podcast where she has one time uh, couple sessions with couples. She's never met them before. They get on her podcast and they record it live and it's real time couples therapy. And it's helping them get beneath the surface and learn how to actually connect with one another. And the beautiful thing about this is that no matter who you are, what type of relationship you're in, or if you're in a relationship at all, you can connect with every single person on this podcast. And it really shines a light onto the nuances and complexities of what it means to be in relationship with someone.
0: Okay, cool. Cool. Now, I want to ask you, Nadia. This uh, book that you 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 uh, mentioned, uh "Women Who Run with the Wolves." Now, uh, if obviously I'm a male, uh, and there's probably going to be some male listeners to the to, to our conversation today, is this a book that you would also maybe recommend to males to read, just to maybe better understand uh, females or whatever the book is 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 uh, you know sharing with with people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's beneficial for everyone, right? Like I always tell women to also read the book called Iron John, which is kind of the masculine uh, counterpart to women who run with the wolves. That book is by Robert Bly, and it, you know, describes the um, the archetypal masculine, right? And so I think that we have a lot to learn from both sides. But I know that every woman that I've ever met that has read this book has pretty much said it is the book that speaks to their soul in the deepest way. So if anybody wants to understand the essence or the soul of a woman or anyone that identifies as female, I would recommend it.
0: Okay, cool. Love it. Um all right. What life lesson, Nadia, have you been taught uh or you have learned in the past year?
1: Hmm. Oh my gosh. What haven't
0: I learned? <laughs> that's such a good question. <laughs> it's Maybe been a been year, my friend. Month, right? The last month, or <laughs> the last couple weeks.
1: Yeah, it's that's a big one. That's a big one. Um, the the first thing that comes to me is, you know, we hear this saying all the time: "Life is too short. Life is too short. Life is too short." In reference to life is too short not to follow your goals or follow your dreams or do what you want, right? But There's also this tension that I've leaned into this year, which is life is both too short and too long. Like it is too long to stay in situations that don't make us happy. It is too long to keep sacrificing our authenticity. It is too long not to follow our truth. And I really like this framework of it's both too short and too long because It helps us really paint the full picture of what it means to be human. It's like not following your authenticity every single day is exhausting Mm. and draining and takes so much time. And so I really want to flip that script of it's not just too short, it's too long. And I feel like I have been faced with this lesson multiple times this year and something that I'm just leaning into more.
0: Excellent. We're gonna we're gonna come back to authenticity uh I, I wanna i wanna touch on that but um let's wrap up the conversational questions nadia uh with this one do you have a and and it maybe ties into what you just said but uh do you have a favorite quote mantra or word
1: yeah i mean authenticity is kind of like my greatest ethos and so I always ask myself, what is authentic? What's the authentic move? What's the authentic thing to say? You know, how would I lead with my authenticity? Because it's not always easy to do so. So I, it's a practice that I have to keep coming back to.
0: Okay, Excellent. Okay, we're gonna transition uh, Nadia into uh, your childhood, uh, your upbringing. And we're going to kind of just start unpacking your, uh, what I like to call your your evolution uh, story. So mm-hmm. um, if you don't mind sharing with myself and the listeners uh, where you actually like physically grew up. And then from there, just kind of paint the picture of what uh, Nadia's childhood was like. Uh, maybe some positive memories, maybe some um, pivotal uh, moments or turning points within your childhood and your your younger years. Uh, what was your relationship like with, uh, you know, like your your parents uh, or guardians? Uh, do you have siblings? So, kind of just give us uh, give us a, a, a painting, a snapshot of those younger years up to about high school. And then once we get to high school, you can touch on high school, and then we'll we'll kind of stop there because I'll uh, I'll transition us from that point.
1: Okay. Oh my goodness, Quentin. That's a, that's a big question. I felt a lump in my throat and a tightening in my stomach. So whew, practicing authenticity, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So I grew up in Northern California, up in the Redwoods near Oregon, little place called Arcata, California. And it was magical Hobbit land. I mean, you have the redwoods and the beach, right? It's like growing up in the most beautiful place ever. I mean, I couldn't have imagined growing up anywhere prettier or more luscious than Humboldt County or Arcata, where I grew up. Um, That being said, it was a very small town, very small community. Uh, Not a lot of opportunities, it, it's kind of stuck in the 70s, like people that go and visit are kind of like, are we in hot tub time machine? Like, what, like, what is this place? Um, So there's just a very interesting culture. Uh, I have four siblings but three of them are older and are on my mom's side. So they're my half siblings. So I'm I'm fourth out of five on my mom's side, but I was the oldest out of my father's kids. And, you know, my mom got pregnant and had her first kid at 15. And by the time she had me, which was her fourth kid, she was 29. So that kind of just paints a picture of, my mom and and her life and my father was an immigrant or is an immigrant from kuwait and so my father um you know came to the united states to go to college when he was 19 and then ended up going back to kuwait for a while in 1990 right before saddam hussein invaded kuwait and so my father was stuck in Kuwait uh, for nine months and ended up finally escaping after a bunch of uh, trials and tribulations to say the least and, and made it back to the United States and then very soon met my mother and they ended up having me pretty quickly after that. So I I grew up with this very interesting mix of being half Arab, half white, in a very white community, very small community. I was the only Arab kid in my community at all. And even though I didn't necessarily know what that meant, I always knew that I was different. Like there was always something in me that felt like an outcast that didn't necessarily fit, like feel like I fit in. And that weighed on me. That was really hard for me because I didn't understand what was happening. Um, You know, I was only seven or eight when 9-11 happened. And I remember that having a really big impact on the way that I saw myself even more. And experienced a lot of bullying for being Arab as a kid. And that always really stuck with me. That was really something that I would say was, I don't want to call it a trauma because I, I didn't feel alone and I didn't feel like it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. It didn't feel like that, but it always felt like this subtle pulse. Like there was always something around. Um. So I was, I was kind of carrying that. My my parents divorced when I was really young. You know, I think it was five. My younger sister was six months, maybe. And I I grew up base, mostly with my mom. Um, My father was in between the Middle East and the United States. A lot kind of going back and forth. I always felt like he really struggled with his identity, right? The things that I felt as a kid of like, ooh, I'm... I'm mixed race. And I'm half Arab and I I feel Arab but not Arab enough and I feel white but not white enough, right? And it was like this tension that I was holding. You know, my father was literally an immigrant and you know, left his home country to come to the United States. And I think that always weighed on him. As I can imagine it does with a lot of people that leave their homeland. So, he was kind of in and out of the picture. I always loved my father so much, um but he just wasn't really around when I was a kid, and I grew up with my mom, and sometimes my older siblings, sometimes not, like, I didn't really know them that well, because they were so much older than me, so I felt like I was the oldest child, and that was very interesting, right, because I'm the middle out of my mom's, but the oldest out of my dad's, Um, so I always kind of, like, I kind of feel when there's the like the memes about middle children and oldest children, I resonate more with the the oldest children <laughs> memes. Um, so anyway, i I grew up in a home that was abusive. like there was there was drugs and and there was abuse and in multi in a multitude of ways. There was a lot of mental illness. and it was very confusing for me as a child because as a child you're kind of helpless right you have no you have no agency no autonomy you're kind of just stuck uh where where you are and a lot of the time we don't know anything beyond what we see right it it paints our reality that was true for me but what was more true for me was always knowing that there was something more. Like I always knew there was something in me. And to this day, you know, I'm, I'm 29 currently. I still don't know how I don't know what that was. Maybe this is my life's work. trying to figure it out. Right. But I always knew there was something more. And That created a lot of tenacity for me. And so I was really into school. I was really into learning. Like I loved going to school so much because not only was I intellectual and I loved to read and I loved to write. I was writing poetry and short stories by the time I was 7 or 8 and got published for the first time when I was 9 years old. I mean, I just like loved literature. And there was also this ability to kind of lose myself at school. Like I got to be a kid. I got to be immersed in my imagination. I got to read and write and play. And I found solace at school. So the older I got, the more I got into doing everything that I could that was extracurricular. I think there was definitely some like perfectionism in there and some like got to prove myself because I'm the oldest. And that's kind of the weight in which I'm carrying as this member in my family. But I think there was also so much soul in it. it was like getting to be all of myself. So, you know, I was senior class president, I was president or not president, I was editor of the student newspaper. I was in multiple clubs, you know, like I I won all the awards. And in all honesty, it came from authenticity. It wasn't coming from this place of like, I need to prove myself or else or I'm bad or wrong or not enough. It came from this place of I just am being who I am. And somehow that gets recognized. Um, and so as I got older, I just had an even deeper inclination to find what wasn't available to me in childhood and that thing that i felt from a really young girl that knew there was something else that never faded that that really only got stronger yeah i'll take a break there
0: <laughs> okay um so your relationship with your mom i would like to know what that was like uh when you were when you were younger And, um, yeah, let's, let's just, I'll ask that.
1: Yeah. My relationship with my mom when I was young was, I loved her so much and I saw her as a God, you know, as children do, you know, they see their parents as gods. They don't know anything differently, you know? And when I turned, eight is when she started dating a really abusive man and that crumbled my relationship with her like every everything that i felt like i knew and could trust in my mom went away and so my relationship with my mom you know i will always love her and i will always cherish her and she's the one that gave me life I also have not been close to her since I was a little girl. Like there was something that split us and it was what I, what I felt as a little girl was she wanted what I'm doing and she wanted what I have, but she experienced so much trauma herself and you know, became a teen mom and that really gets in the way of somebody's growth. And so I, I felt like even though my mom and I didn't have a good relationship or a close relationship, and that's still true today, I I do feel like, and we've never talked about this, but I, I always felt like my mom could see my potential my mom could see what I wanted and where I was going. And she kind of just backed off because she knew I could do it, whether that was with or without her. Right. And while that's really painful for a little eight-year-old, eight-year-old to 17-year-old to feel and to experience kind of like the, the loss of a mother that's, there and that is alive but it's kind of more like a ghost in the picture you know there's a there's a grief to that and as hard as that was the older I get the more I can tap into the gratitude Mm. for that I didn't feel like she wanted me to be her I didn't feel like she wanted to hold me back I think she could tell that i had so much potential and that i had a ferocity and that i was going to go somewhere and she kind of went okay i'm going to step back it's a very interesting
0: relationship <laughs> it it sounds like um now uh it sounds like school and you kind of mentioned this i believe was was a was a type of a solace for you or escape um, a, a happy place, maybe for you, is is a is a better uh, use of terminology. But um, were there any adults that you feel like when you were younger? Uh, I, I mean, we're we're not we're not obviously talking about your mom and dad. We've kind of already discussed that. But uh, were there any adults outside of like immediate the immediate family or your your home environment that you feel like really? uh, empowered you and gave you, um, uh, maybe, a a uh, a, a boost in, in your life, um, at, at some point in those younger years?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two people come to mind. So my grandma, my mom's mom, still to this day, she's still alive. She's, she's 82 now, grandma Dottie, um, She was always so kind and so warm and so sweet to me. And I never felt judged. I was never punished. And I was just loved. Like I was so deeply loved by her. And when I was with her, I felt free. Like I have so many memories of, singing and dancing in front of her in her backyard and her sitting outside drinking iced tea just watching me and cheering me on and that for me was like everything I needed I just needed like this safety in the container of being able to be me with no questions asked right I will always 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 cherish that time with my grandma you know and we were so close we traveled around the country together anytime she went out of town I was like you're not leaving without me she'd be like okay Nadia you know so it's like I got to really be around my grandma and that was really impactful for me as a kid and then what just came to consciousness and I really haven't thought about him in a really long time but my fifth grade teacher his name was Mr. Boyson and he kind of terrified me he was kind of I think he was like ex, ex-military he was kind of like stirred and would like slap his hand on kids desks if they were fooling around too much but there was something that I just really felt connected to with him and I I told you a little bit earlier I used to write short story mysteries it was like my that was like Nancy Drew, but for like a 10 year old and I would write them and I would just take them and I would put them on his desk and he would always read them and give me really good feedback. And he always encouraged me to keep writing. He was like, you are a writer. You're going to get published one day. Don't give this up. And even when I saw him years later, he remembered that he's like, are you still writing? You need to write, and here I am, 29. You know, writing my first book, and it's like I think about him. Mm. Like I really think his encouragement was was pivotal Mm. in this process.
0: Do do you uh, this teacher that you're you're uh, sharing about right now, Nadia? Outside of him encouraging in terms of the uh, the writing and maybe slamming his hand on the desk. Do you remember anything? (laughs) you remember anything else about his classes or, or, or him specifically outside of what you've already shared?
1: I remember him crying when he talked about how much he loved his daughter. Mm. That's the first thing that comes to me. Mm. He is telling a story about his daughter And he was tearing up. And I remember a couple kids kind of like snickering. You know, like, eh, Mr. Boyson's crying or tearing up, right? But I remember feeling so, like, broken open as a little 10-year-old by that. Like, watching this older man share his love for his daughter and not being afraid to cry about it in the middle of teaching class. And that will always stick with me. I mean, his class was great and we learned a lot, but it, it was really his character that, that inspired me.
0: It, it, I mean, it goes back to authenticity, right? Your, your word and Mm -hmm. what you strive for each day in your life. It sounds like he was uh, a human being that was just being himself and authentic, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Now, uh, you mentioned like being really, uh, involved in, uh, extracurricular activities and, and things like that. Now, did you, uh, ever play any sports or were you more focused on like the, the writing and being a part of the newspaper and, and, uh, extracurriculars extracurriculars of, of that nature?
1: Yeah, I wish I was into sports, Quentin. This is like <laughs> I haven't moved my body in so long. No, I played I played sports in middle school. Uh, I played basketball all three years and soccer all three years, and I love both sports. But when it came to high school and watching how incredible other students were, other kids were at these at these sports. I mean, I wasn't. I just wasn't, and when it got to the point the 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 competitiveness of high school versus middle school i was like yeah i'm out like i'm good i'm gone it's not fun for me anymore um and i much rather watch people who are actually good at this do it okay. so i really i really dabbled in art you know i was i was really grateful to be a part of the art institute within my high school So the really cool thing about the place where I'm from is that it's so small, and the the amount of artists per capita is extremely high, like one of the highest, I think, in the country. And so we have a very artistic-based community that really amplifies student artists. So at my high school, you could apply for this grant-funded art institute where every single day after lunch you have a block period of either art-based art-based english or art and that could be visual art photography music or drama you got to choose so i was a photographer for my first two years and then i decided i wanted to learn how to paint so i switched to visual art and every day We got to just do art. And if we had English class, then every project that we turned in also had an art-based component. And that is where I began to find my voice, my creativity, my artistry, right? Like, yeah, I was editor of the student newspaper and yeah, I was senior class president, but a lot of that is you know, I'm writing articles about what I need to write articles about in student class president. It's like I have to take care of the, the entire uh, senior class body. Right. But being an artist and having that space in school to just do whatever I wanted, it's like that is where I felt like I fit in. That is where I finally felt like for the first time in my life, I had a place, mm-hmm. you know, going back to like little kid, Nadia, growing up Arab post 9-11 in a very small white community. It's like, I always felt like an outcast. Like I said, right. It's like, I never felt white enough. I never felt Arab enough. I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere, but when I was in the art Institute and I was doing art every single day with all the other art kids, right. No matter what level, what walk of life, it's like, we all came together and we were the misfits. And that is where I finally felt like, Oh, I get to be me. Hmm. Like, this is who I am. I'm discovering who I am and it's okay to just be. And I think it, it taught me a lot. It cracked me open and it showed me a new way of, of being.
0: Hmm. Beautiful. Um, now I've had quite a few, uh, therapists, uh, on uh different podcasts that I've I've had over uh the years um and a lot of the therapists that I've had on the podcast uh had a therapist when they were, you know, a child or a teen in their younger years. <clears throat> so what I'd like to know <clears throat> excuse me is uh when was the first time that you experienced therapy? Had a therapist, or that kind of came into your being in terms of like, hey, this is this is an option for me. This is a career path for me. Uh, would you Would you touch on that, Nadia, please?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I first started therapy when I was fifteen, and at that time, it didn't feel like a choice. It felt like I was being forced to do something that. I didn't necessarily want to do, and nobody else in my family was going to therapy. And so I was like, why me? Like, why am I the only one? Let's look at what's happening here. Um, and I was kind of resistant, you know, I was defiant. But I really did like my therapist. I thought he was very kind. Um, and we did a lot of art therapy together and sand tray and you know, more, more um. Like tangible with my hands, I got to make things and create things. And that was really good for me. When I was tired of talking, and I didn't know what to say. And it just felt also confusing as it does for a kid or a teenager. It's like, I just want to create. So I was really thankful for my therapist for that reason. Um, But then I stopped going to therapy, I think about a year later. So I was 16 at the time. And I didn't find myself back in therapy until I was 22. Do you want me to go there or are we not there yet?
0: We're no, no, I don't want, I don't want you to go there quite yet.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. So it wasn't until I was 22.
0: Okay. But you did at 15, you had a, I'd say, you know, a pretty early exposure to, to a therapist in therapy, right?
1: I did. I did. And I wanted to be a lawyer. I think this is really important to share, too, is that and as, as I've gotten older, I truly believe that the only reason that I wanted to be a lawyer is because I loved the movie Legally Blonde as a kid, and she went to Harvard Law, and so I decided I wanted to go to Harvard Law, and I'm like, what kid knows about Harvard Law <laughs> outside of this movie, right? And so... Uh, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer for such a long time, but there are multiple people in my life, multiple teachers, multiple extended family members that said to me before I was 18, I think you'd make a really good therapist. And I always was like, what? No, I'm going to be a lawyer. And so I think that's just, it's, it's interesting and important to bring up, I think.
0: Yes. That, that is a question I was going to ask is what you wanted to, do or be quote unquote hmm. where you, uh, grew up. Uh That's a question I usually ask. So that's, that's perfect. Now to kind of wrap things up, Naughty, in terms of like, you know, your, your teenage years and uh you know, high school and all of that, I, I would just, I, I'm kind of curious in terms of like your, your, your uh friend group, or maybe lack thereof. Cause you, you said you always kind of felt different from a very young age, but then once you kind of got into the art And it sounds like you kind of found your, 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 uh, uh, niche, uh, once you kind of got into high school, talk to me a little bit about like this, the social aspect of Nadia as a teenager, uh, your friend group and, and that, uh, dynamic, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah. So I had a best friend from the time, my first day in kindergarten, she's amazing. We're still really good friends to this day, but In middle school and high school, you know, as kids do, we kind of went opposite ways and found different groups and and whatnot. But, you know, I've had this friend for 25 years and that feels really special. So from kindergarten through like sixth grade, we were just I mean, we stayed together every night. It's like we lived together. She was like my sister. I kind of ventured off into what I would call the popular kids group. Because I wanted so desperately to be accepted. Like I I had that yearning from the time I was really young because I I did feel different. It's like I did want to be accepted. My life felt so chaotic and unlike all the other kids that I was seeing, whether whether or not that's true, that was just my perception, right? But it's like I wanted to be in the popular girls group, but I was very much the one in the group that they didn't like, or the one in the group that they made fun of. And there was a very pivotal experience where I think I was 12, I think this was seventh grade. And I went to one of the popular girls' birthday parties. And it's a group of like, I don't know, eight or nine of us. And I was the first one to fall asleep. And I woke up and they were all around me pouring mustard down my shirt putting makeup all over my face and taking photos of me. And I was traumatized. Like that was the moment where I was like, nope, I'm out. This isn't safe. I'm not into this. And I very quickly like went from that group to like goth emo scene kid and cut off all my hair, wore knee high converse every day, like listened to death metal and just was like the kid that was like, I'm not doing this, and and um, again, I'm an outcast. Like I really think I leaned into that. Uh, I don't know. I guess it's a maybe a persona, like that belief that I was such an outcast that I did become one, right? And if you know, if you or the listeners know anything about the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram four, which is the individualist. Not that I knew this at the time, right? But the core wound of the four is that they're too unique for the world, right? That they're too different, that they don't fit in. So this really goes into like my experience of how I saw myself as a kid. And what what fours do often is that make themselves too unique Mm -hmm. and separate themselves from the rest of the world. So anyway, I was seen kid, it was awesome. But then, you know, when I was about 17 is when I began to experience a softening around that and being able to be around all the, the art kids and the journalism kids and the, and the kids that really cared about something. It's like, we all had a mission. We all cared. There was a depth. And when I found other people that I felt that that resonance with it was like all of the facade just left and we all just got to be who we were and so my friends I mean they were all artists they were all journalism kids and we were all so different but we could all just relate in our authenticity like we all cared about the same thing and those friends that I made in high school are, you know, still some of my closest friends today. You know, I just, I got married about two months ago and, you know, it was like all of my high school friends were there.
0: It was awesome. That is awesome. Uh, one, one other quick question that popped up in my mind before we transitioned to post high school, uh, when you were growing up, uh, did you have any exposure to, uh, any, any, uh, you know, uh, religion or any type of uh, spiritual uh spirituality or anything of that nature and at that age when when and if you were exposed to that type of stuff what were your thoughts
1: oh my gosh <laughs> well great question quinton um so you know my father it is, is has been traditionally muslim right coming from Kuwait and my mom's side of the family is very devout Christian like my mom's name is charity and my answer, faith, and hope. So if that like paints any picture <laughs> um, to the side of the family that I grew up in, it's like I grew up with like evangelical, you know, white Christians, and I was this like little Arab kid that looked just like her father and questioned everything. It was like, what? Um, And I grew up going to church. My grandma would pick me and my sister up every Sunday, take us to church, take us to lunch and drop us back off. But I always felt like I had no idea what was happening. I was like faking it the entire time, like nothing made sense to me. And I remember having these thoughts of like, I do this for my grandma Because my grandma has been so kind and so loving and so understanding, like I am going to be the quote unquote good girl and go through church every Sunday and fake it till I make it. Um, But my thoughts were always like, yeah, this doesn't quite land, uh, but I don't know why. And my father, who's Muslim, always, always told me from the time I was a little girl. You can believe anything you want to believe and don't let anybody influence you. So I really have always respected my father for that reason. He always instilled autonomy and freedom of thought in me. Um, and so he, I never learned anything about Islam from him because he just he didn't have that agenda. He wasn't
0: trying to push that on me. Hmm. I'm, I'm glad I asked that question. It it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, um, I don't know if you want to say the dichotomy of it or just how it coincides with your story up to this point. Right. And, and I, 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 I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up. I, I want to bring up, uh, your husband, Mikey, who, uh, was a guest on the podcast, uh, several months ago. Um, and it's fascinating because. We 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 touched on. I might have asked him maybe a similar question. I can't remember, but I know we got into a little bit of of you know just di- discussion about religion and and where his his thoughts were with all that. Uh, you know, at this point in his life, and from my remembrance, uh, he he grew up you know being influenced heavily uh, in terms of Christianity and went to youth group. I remember uh, he him saying so. Yeah. Um. It's it's just so inner like life is so interesting. Uh, and, and, uh, it's so fascinating that I had had the opportunity to have Mikey on, uh, and now I I get to have you, his, his, his wife on his partner on and, and just some, some similarities already in, in your guys's, uh, lives. And then we're going to get you guys. Yeah. But I just, I just wanted to touch on that because it's just fascinating to me, right? Like just life. Um, you know, I don't really use the terminology that you use in terms of like, uh, uh you know the the word like magical or anything but like sure. we're just open to what life has to give us and 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 teach us and present to us like um again i'm not going to use the word magical but there's just there's so much beauty within life right
1: yeah yeah i mean it's it can be synchronistic it can be serendipitous it can be it can be whatever you want it to be. Right. But there, there is something bigger, you know, and I don't even mean that it's like God or, or some force, but it's like, we are just, we are one body, one human having this experience that is so much bigger than us. And if we can, yeah, if we can just get out of that like egoic mind for a moment, there's a lot of, um, a lot out there that could maybe find its way to us. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you wanted to be a, you wanted to go to Harvard uh, law and become a lawyer. Uh, Now, once you, (laughs) once, once you graduated from high school, uh, Nadia, uh, where did life take you? How did, how did life unfold for you post high school?
1: Yeah. So I ended up going to UC Santa Cruz for a hot minute, and at that time when I was 17, it kind of switched from wanting to be a lawyer to wanting to be a scientist, even though I was terrible in biology and in chemistry and in AP environmental studies, like the worst, and I just kept doing it because I felt like that's what everybody at my school was into. Um And that's what made you quote unquote cooler or smarter. And so like there was that part of me that, again, this is a ubiquitous theme in my life uh, was, you know, trying to fit in. So anyway, I went to UC Santa Cruz uh, with um, a major in, gosh, like, biomechanical engineering or something. Something that is so far away from like who I am or what I'm into, but just paints a really good picture of like, you know, the the image I wanted or how much I was trying to fit in really. So anyway, I ended up in UC Santa Cruz and it was too much for me. The the city itself was too big. The school was too big. I wasn't studying what I wanted to. Nothing about it felt authentic. It was like every everything in me didn't want to be there, but I felt like I needed to be. And coinciding with that, I also developed two autoimmune illnesses. So I, I got diagnosed with celiac in 2012 um and had a bunch of stomach ulcers at the time. Very, very much related to trauma. And at the time did not know that. Um, But when I found myself really sick and I felt really alone, I I ended up moving back home to my small town and transferred to the local university. So I went to Humboldt State and there was a new major which was Criminology and Justice Studies. Hmm. And it kind of came full circle because I was like, oh yeah, like I was really interested in law and in helping people. and you know, I've I've always been justice oriented like there was something that felt synchronistic about it. like, oh, here's this new major. I'd be in the first graduating class. And so I switched and I, I studied criminology and justice studies. So that isn't like a criminal justice, like learning the law to become, a police officer or to become a lawyer, but it was, it was really a sociology degree. It was really looking at systems and really looking at inequity and really, um, peeling back the laws that we have in place and how they relate back to, you know, things like racism or sexism or poverty, right? Like all of, all of these injustices and, I loved it so much and it made me depressed. Like it was this both end of this is really needed and this is really important and we never once talked about self-care. And I'm using air quotes here cuz self-care is like so like whatever these days, right? But I mean this is back in 2012. It's like nobody's talking about self-care. Nobody's talking about how to take Um, you know, proper precautions of like only taking in as much information as you can, what it means to like decompress, you know, there was none of that. And it just felt like it kept piling on top, piling on top, piling on top. Then I went and I studied in the Netherlands and this was 2016 now. So I did a study abroad program and the whole purpose of that program was to do comparative justice studies, basically, between the United States and the Netherlands, right? The Netherlands is closing prisons left and right because they don't have enough bodies to fill them. They sell them to other countries. Inmates get to wear their own clothes. They have a key to their own door. They all have windows. They have their own rooms. They have a TV. You know, um, the average sentence is six months, and most people get out sooner. The recidivism rate is extremely low you know, it's like 7% or 10% or something where, you know, the United States at 70% in the first three years and then goes up. And so I was working with, with inmates, working with prison guards, working with wardens, like all of these people in the Netherlands. And it was just so completely different. It was like, oh my gosh, people actually get to experience a way better quality of life here, right? I mean, there's a lot of debate on like whether or not prisons should exist in the first place. I'm not trying to get there today, but it's really about taking care of people, right? And what I saw was so much more humanity in these prisons, right? Like the guards didn't carry any weapons on them. The inmates would hug the guards every day. They'd have heart-to-heart conversations. Like, it was just so different. And I remember feeling like, oh, my God, this is what the U.S. is missing. Like, if we could only just move away from this, like, extremely toxic and oppressive system that keeps people stuck in that loop, maybe we could experience what the Netherlands is experiencing. And then at the same time, it had me questioning how people get there in the first place. So on my first day in the prison, you know, I'm in like a super max prison or equivalent to in the Netherlands. And my group is having lunch with an inmate. And we're talking with the inmate and he's jovial and he's sweet and he's kind, he's receptive, he's asking questions. And At one point, one of my colleagues asks, do you mind telling us what got you here? And I remember the prison guard like tapping him on the shoulder and saying like, hey, man, you don't have to share, you know, you don't have to share if you don't want to. And the inmate was like, yeah, I know I don't, but I want to, you know, I've unfortunately taken somebody's life. And so now we're sitting here going, oh, wow. Well, this man has murdered someone. Wow. Like we are eating lunch with a murderer. And I remember asking, what has this experience taught you? Like, what have you learned about yourself through this experience? And he teared up and he said, I didn't realize how much I needed love. And that was his answer. And it kind of makes me teary-eyed now because I remember feeling it was so profound when that happened. And I remember going, okay, you don't just end up in prison. That like there's so much that happens before that gets you to that place. Coming from a family where, you know, there was incarceration. And there was drug use and there was a lot of abuse and a lot of trauma, you know, and even siblings that have been in the system. It's like, how did I get here? Like, how did I escape all of this? And how am I now the person on the other side with a college degree studying in the Netherlands, sitting across from somebody who murdered someone and seeing like I could see my brother or my sister or somebody across from me in this person and that's when I had a bit of a revelation and was like it starts with trauma Mm. like it starts really freaking early and that's when I found myself in therapy again so this is when I, I was 22 and I found myself in therapy again and was really just peeling back all of the layers of my own childhood and trying to make sense of the world while also going, I can't work in the criminal justice system in the United States because it is, it's is—it's too haunting. Like there's too much happening. And I didn't feel like I could actually make a difference And so it led me like through my own therapeutic journey, peeling back with my therapist. Well, how can I actually make a difference? What actually feels good to me? And after about a year, my therapist looked at me and she goes, I think you're ready for me to tell you this. I was like, ooh, interesting. (laughs) What are you going to tell me? You know, because I I thought that I was going to go back to school to study psychology, but I wasn't thinking a clinical track. I wasn't thinking I was going to become a therapist. I thought it was going to be research based. And she's like, you keep talking about studying psychology, but only wanting to study psychology if it has the depth and the soul that you're looking for. She's like, as therapists, we're not really supposed to give advice. We're not really supposed to tell you like, hey, you should look into this specific thing. you're supposed to give like three options. Or if you're referring out to someone or referring out, you give three different therapist names, right? Like there's, there's kind of a joke. It goes in threes, right? You never just say one thing, but she was saying, I think you would be a perfect fit for the school that I went to. And it's called Pacifica graduate Institute. And it's all about depth psychology. And I was like, Ooh, what's depth psychology? And she's like, it's the study of the soul. It's the study of the unconscious. And I think that this is what you're looking for. And so I went home that day and I looked up Pacifica Graduate Institute. And the moment I did, I just felt like full body chills. And it was like, oh my God, this is where I have to go. This is it. This is exactly it. And it was that day that I um began my application process.
0: Mm. Um, wow, okay. That's that's super cool. Now um why do you why do you feel uh, or why do you know, Nadia, that the experience with the inmate that was a murderer that, you know, uh, uh, brought up uh, his need for love, wh- why do you know or feel that uh, that was such a impactful moment and pivotal moment uh, for you at, at that uh, juncture of your life?
1: Because it felt so real. You know, it it felt like one of my biggest quarrels with the university is like, you learn all of this stuff from a very intellectual mindset, right? You read statistics, you read theory, you this, you that. And it's like, I'm sitting in front of somebody who murdered somebody. And when I asked him what the lesson was, he said, I didn't realize how much I needed love. Like, how human is that? Right. And that's not to like justify him taking somebody's life. Like, that's awful, right? That's terrible. But it's like, you don't just end up a murderer. That just doesn't happen. You know, it's not like I'm going to go out and murder someone today. You know, I mean, maybe there's like few and far between if we're talking about like psychopath here, but we're not. We're talking about this person that experienced a lot of trauma in his life. And it really just showed me how fragile we are as humans like we are both resilient and fragile and depending on the environment depending on you know the dis- different systems at play it really um toggles us to one side or the other and this person was fragile you know i and i have felt like i have been more resilient i didn't really feel like i had a choice but there was something in me right like from the time as a little girl that was like There's something else. There's something different, right? And I kept following that North Star, so to speak. But a lot of people don't even know which way the North Star is. And they're just doing their freaking best. And they have no idea what direction they're walking in. And as I really looked at my own family, in my my own uh, constellation of my life, it's like, oh, yeah, I could see how you ended up there. I get that you know it is pure trauma and pure survival um and that moment really changed everything for me because i was so like depressed and uninspired thinking about coming back to the united states and working in the systems right i worked in reentry like i helped people who were formerly incarcerated get back into society but You know, in the United States, it's like you don't have enough money for a job or for an apartment. Nobody's going to give you a job. Right. You just end up back where you are. And in the Netherlands, it's very different. They sit you down. They have a whole um, team that works with you of like, okay, here's how we're going to get you out. And we're going to find you a job outside of the prison. And if you show up well every day, we'll drive you to your job and pick you up after so that by the time you get out, you, st- you have a stable job, right? Like that's the difference that we're talking about here. And so as somebody who had just graduated, was traveling abroad, felt like a huge surge of inspiration in the Netherlands and thinking about coming back, it's like, I can't do this forever. How do I get to the root? Like this system didn't just create itself. What's at the root? And the root is trauma. And so that's when I was like, okay, we need to focus more micro. Like I need, I can help people on a micro level. Um, And that's what led me to go back to school. So I kind of pendulated from one side to the other. It was like huge macro. And then I was like, fuck this. This is awful. This is terrible. This is heart wrenching. Now I'm going to go focus on the individual.
0: Mm -hmm. Now. Um, before we kind of get into uh uh depth psychology and you being a depth therapist and somatic leadership coach um I, I want to go back to what I said we're going to come back to and that's uh your word of authenticity right so you have painted this picture for us Nadia of this this uh young girl and this young woman who this is my terminology but I just I I I, I feel like, you were uh, on a search, right? You were searching for yourself. You were searching for purpose. You were searching for identity. You were trying to fit in. Uh, you always felt different, all of these things, right? That's kind of the, the picture that I uh, see that you've painted for us up to this point. Now, going back to authenticity, when do you feel like you uh, were awakened to uh, the reality of the need for authenticity? authenticity in your life? And when did you step into your authenticity in terms of uh, the Nadia bracket that you are current day? Hmm. It's
1: a good question. It's like that has to land for a minute. So I think that people become therapists to not only help other people, but to make sense of their own lives, right? It's like, you don't just become a therapist because that sounds like a fun job. (laughs) It's like, there's, there's a lot that goes into that decision. Um, And I I think going to grad school was really big and really pivotal for me. You know, I, I always say that Pacifica, the school I went to was like spiritual boot camp. It, you know, it's like, it broke you down, it broke your defenses down and rebuilt you from, from the bottom up with your authenticity, with your soul. And so I would say that my authenticity really, I found my authenticity when I, right before I met Mikey, right before I met my husband. So this is two plus years ago now. And, you know, there was something always brewing in me. And I always did find my authenticity, right? Like I got out of my home. I made it through school. I didn't end up going into the criminal justice field. You know, like I was following my soul, but it was, it was dampened and there was a lot getting in the way of me being able to just listen to it and hear it on a everyday level, right? Going to Pacifica was a really big authentic move for me, right? Pacifica was like extremely expensive. You know, I could have gone to any other program for like a third of the price, but was like, no, this is it, right? And it was a difficult school. I mean, the first paper that we wrote, one of the first papers we wrote, was about our cohorts. We had about 25 people in our cohort. And our first paper was, choose two people that you project on and talk about why. One that you project on in a negative way and one that you project on in a positive way. And I was like, oh, they mean business. Like we are not just doing theory. Like we are doing the deep work right now. So that was two and a half years straight right we didn't get break so it was like three years moved into two and a half and by the time that I was about to end I got out of a relationship that wasn't serving me and a relationship I was really trying to make work but it wasn't authentic and it just wasn't working and and finally I felt like I knew the answer and that my soul was pushing for the breakup, but I didn't know how to do it. I wasn't, I like, I felt so terrified, but I finally went up to my partner at the time and I was like, hey, are you trying to meet me? Are you trying to grow? Like, are we on the same page? Are we doing this? And he said, no. And in that moment, I felt like both the pain and the relief, right? I felt the like, oh my gosh, this is sad. And thank you so much. Right. And that was a really big moment of stepping into my authenticity because it's like, sometimes the authenticity brings pain. Mm-hmm. Right. But there's a difference to me between pain and suffering, right? Like clean pain versus dirty pain. It's like, as humans, we have to feel the clean pain. Pain is inevitable. We are asked to feel it, right? That is okay. That's normal. That's human. But it's it's everything that we do to avoid feeling that pain that becomes the the dirty pain. That becomes the suffering that we don't necessarily need to endure, but it feels too scary to feel this clean pain. And I had experienced a lot of that dirty pain in my life. Or, you know, creating inadvertently creating more suffering in my life by not following my truth. And in this moment where I just like I I felt like I knew what the answer was and I braved the, un- un- the unknown and the scary anyway. And and he said, no. And I said, OK, thanks. <laughs> OK, great. <laughs> that was a moment that I felt my authenticity kick in like it felt like it came forward more and was like okay this is what it feels like to choose what's actually true versus choosing what feels safe mm. and when that happened you know less than three years ago that was about three years ago i think now when that happened that's, that's when something really changed for me.
0: And, and so you, you brought up Mikey. So why don't you, cause I wanted to, I wanted to uh, bring your husband up at some point. Cause he just one of the, one of the best conversations I've ever had on uh, any podcast. And I've been doing this for over five years, like just, just a, a cool, uh, chill, deep, human being. Um, so tell tell all of us, um, how you guys kind of met and then how did he kind of meet you where you were at, at that point when you guys met and, and just talk about, uh, that relationship if you don't mind.
1: Yeah. Well, I love that you, you think that way about your, your conversation with him because he really is cool and chill and deep. And you know, that's just, that is who he is. So. Yeah, this th- this all um, goes together because I actually only met Mikey 10 days out of this relationship with this other person, which <laughs> was really hard for me because it's like I just got out of a relationship. I'm not trying to jump into the next one, right? But anyway, I was living in New Mexico at the time and I had free flight miles that were about to expire. And my friend here in Denver, she's 60. So she's like my mom's age, you know, but she is so cool and like so fun. And we we were in the cohort together at Pacifica and she's like, you should come visit me. Just come visit me. And I was like, okay, great. So I already had the trip planned before I went through this breakup. And so I'm freshly... Out, single, whatever. And I get to Denver and my friend is like trying to convince me to get on the apps. She's like, get on the apps. You're you're in Denver, which they call Menver because there's more men than women, you know, just like really trying to sell the apps. And I was like, I'm just, I'm not feeling it. I'm not ready. And she's like, yeah, whatever. So finally that night I go, okay, whatever. I'll download Bumble. I've never used Bumble in my life. I had no idea what I was doing and downloaded it and forgot about it. And then the next day (laughs) we're sitting there and I'm like, oh yeah, I, I downloaded this yesterday. And she's like, let's look, let's look. So I get on Bumble and I'm not joking that maybe in five minutes, I see Mikey, right? Mikey, 35, therapist, you know, his bio says all the right things. Like I'm a Libra, I'm an Enneagram eight. You know, he puts INFJ, like all of the things that I'm into. And then at the end goes, looking for a witchy woman to keep me grounded. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> you know, that, that feels appealing to me. <laughs> and so I reply back and I go like, I'm Nadia. I'm a cancer. I'm an Enneagram four, you know, all the things. Then I go "And a self-proclaimed witchy woman. <laughs> and he's like, great. Hi, nice to meet you. And I'm like, I'm in town for one more night. And he asked me to dinner. I said, yes. And, we ended up going to dinner and we had this like fabulous, magical date. We walked all around the city and we just there was this unparalleled depth between us that just happened so quickly. Like there was, you know, there was no pretense, there was no persona. It was just like this is who I am. And it felt like we both showed up that way. And we went on our date, we said separate way or we went separate ways and very soon, it was like, I like you. I really think that this is something. We both felt that. And and then we got together. And I didn't realize at the time, but when I was a little girl, from the time I, I was maybe in fourth grade, I looked at the clock at 9-11. I always thought that this was somewhat like weird Arab guilt thing. Like I looked at the clock at 9-11, I'm a little Arab girl, right? There's like all, all of this messaging. But my, I mean my my sister, my friends, my family, they all know this. Nadia looks at the clock at 9, 9 eleven right when I get um I get messages from friends sometimes still like it's 9 eleven thinking about you. you know so it's like this big part of my field and my psyche. And then the day that I met Mikey was on 9 eleven. Mm-hmm. and so I I always, I always go back to that. Like, you know, whether or not you believe in magic, whether or not you believe in synchronicity, it's like there's something really special about that for me. Um, and yeah, Mikey and I met on 9-11 and here we are over two years later, married and
0: it's amazing. So, uh, we're going to start wrapping it up, but, uh, just, uh, a question about, you know, uh, your relationship with Mikey. Um, so this, this, it sounds like when you guys, uh, you know, first met each other and then began a relationship together, it, 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 it pretty closely coincided with you really stepping into, uh, who you currently are and, and stepping into that, uh, empowering authenticity and all that. So, My question is then how has this connection and relationship with Mikey um, empowered you even more into uh, who you are right now, uh, empowering you into your authenticity and just catapulting you forward in terms of your life pursuits?
1: Yeah, yeah, such a great question. You know, Mikey is truly an incredible man, like truly. And from day one, he always encouraged me to be myself. Like I remember there was a day in which we were talking on the phone and I had felt like I had taken up too much space and I was kind of getting a little insecure about it. And I just said, I'm sorry, I feel like I've taken up so much space. Why don't we talk about you? And he was silent. And then he said, you can take up even more space. And I put that story in our vows because that was when I knew I wanted to marry him. Like that was the moment where I was like, wow, this, this man's serious. Like he's not messing around. And just from the the very beginning, Mikey has been such a rock for me and he's so stable and he's so consistent and he's so caring and he's so deep that there's never any question if we're okay or not. That's not something I have to worry about ever, and the amount of safety that that brings to my body and my nervous system allows me to go off into the world and create what I'm creating. Like I don't think that I would be where I am without that relationship with him, um, and he's he's just my biggest
0: supporter. That is, I, I love that. Uh, I think that's really um, anybody that you know, desires to have that, uh, you know, uh, in-depth relationship with another human being. Like I, I just, what you just shared, I, I think that's what a lot of us humans truly want and desire. And and not everybody uh, gets that or finds that, but, uh, that, that is, that is truly beautiful. And I, I appreciate you, Nadia, touching on that and sharing that because, um, that is authentic to your story and it's, It's real life, right? So um, now I want to kind of start again, wrapping it up, but I want to, I want you to share with all of us, because I don't know myself personally, um, what, what is, what is depth psychology? What is being a depth therapist? And, and, and as you share that, just kind of share, wrap up your story in terms of your, your studying depth psychology at this college, you're stepping into yourself uh, once you graduate with your master's degree, like how does life unfold at that point? Um, so kind of tie that part of your story in with the actual definition or, 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 or uh background of depth psychology and you being a depth therapist, if you, if you don't. Sure.
1: Know. Sure. Yeah.
0: So depth psychology, again,
1: is the study of the soul. It's the study of the unconscious. So what makes that really special is that in the field of therapy today there is such an emphasis on the cognitive on the mind on evidence-based modalities right we hear all the time CBT cognitive behavioral therapy it is like the modality that is most commonly used in the United States why because they can prove it through research which whatever i have lots of opinions about but Two, it's also the modality that insurance pays out, right? Because it's quote unquote proven. So there's a lot of um, money and bureaucracy tied into this evidence-based practice and how evidence-based practices are better than anything else, right? Different conversation for a different day. But depth therapy is really looking at what is unconsciously motivating you underneath the thoughts the mindset what you perceive to be happening right like where is the unconscious coming forward where are you still unconscious to the ways in which you are operating right and how is that impacting your everyday life what what is your soul speaking to right so it's really uh, it's looking at the soul and looking at symptoms as callings from the soul And so if somebody is experiencing depression or anxiety, instead of taking a clinical approach and being like, okay, well, let's just medicate medicate you or let's just change your negative thoughts. If you think poorly about yourself, how do you change that into a positive thought, right? It's less about that. And it's about going, okay, well, where is your soul speaking to misalignment? Where is your soul speaking to, I want you to see this part of yourself. And how do we bring Soul forward, right? So it's not just about changing your thoughts and changing your life. It's about really developing a relationship with your unconscious because the unconscious mind, the unconscious psyche is 90% of your psyche, right? Your conscious mind is only the tip of the iceberg, the things that we can see. But there's so much happening underneath that's influencing the way that we move through the world. And that's really what depth therapy is concerned about. Mm. So, mm. oh, yeah, do you have a question?
0: No, 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 you you go ahead. You go ahead.
1: OK, so that's what depth therapy is, right? When I graduated, I had sprung free from this graduate program and was like, great, I'm going to go be a therapist and I'm going to work in an agency and I'm going to do private practice. and." I'm helping the world because now I moved from the macro to the micro and like, awesome. And then I got into the field and I was like, oh my God, everybody's experiencing the same things. So many are unhappy. So many are overwhelmed. So many are burnt out. So many are working to live and living to work. So many people have road rage, right? Like so many people are experiencing the same exact things, no matter what walk of life you come from. And I worked at an agency where therapists were getting paid very, very low wages. uh, And that's just normal. That's normal. It's like, okay, well, you know, you spent all these years studying and you've put all this money in, but here you can make $35 an hour. And mind you, this is like, Per clinical hour. You don't get paid eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. It's like when a client shows up and if they cancel, you don't get that money. Right. So it's like at an agency, the average therapist makes anywhere from 35,000 to 40,000 after taxes every year. It's, it's like really bad, right. Um, not sustainable. And I saw all of my colleagues, not all, I mean, that's like hyperbolic, but a lot of my colleagues struggling with the same things they were trying to help their clients with. They were overwhelmed. I mean, I had a colleague that was just an inpatient treatment for an eating disorder that had to come back because she couldn't afford it anymore and needed to be able to afford her inpatient treatment center. So she began seeing clients again. Like, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say that even the people who are trying to do the work and change the world are experiencing the same things. And so that's what really led me to holding the tension of these two worlds of criminology and justice studies, this like sociological approach that I have learned um, and studied so deeply in my teens and early twenties with psychology and depth therapy and the individual psyche and bringing them together and going, okay, The individual cannot heal until systems can heal. And the systems heal when individuals heal, right? So we're holding this both and. And so that is when I burned down my private practice, left the agency and began working with entrepreneurs, with leaders, with organizations, with CEOs, executives, people who have influence. Because what I've seen is that the people who have a lot of influence like CEOs, executives, entrepreneurs, they experience all the same things that the people at the bottom or the people that they're hiring or whatever are experiencing as well. But they're the ones that are making the rules. They're the ones that are creating the games that we're playing, right? And so I have, over the last year and a half, have begun working with conscious leaders and conscious organizations to do deep, depth work and nervous system work to really get clear about what do we feel like we need to do? And what's the life that we feel like we need to live? What games have we been playing by and what rules have we been subscribing to that have been based in oppression and where can we heal and come back to our authenticity and lead from a place of ease of soul, of service, of community and how do we use our influence for good? And so I've worked with a lot of CEOs and entrepreneurs and organizations over the last year and a half that have really changed the way that they've run business or the way that they've operated from the inside out. And it's having big, big trickle down effects into the entire systems that they have influence over. So that's really my niche and and what I do and and how I came to do that through um, the last 10 years of study. Okay,
0: now, um, in terms of breaking, like closing down your private practice and then starting to work with the CEOs and, and the uh, businesses and 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 what you just mentioned, can you kind of give us the practicals and the nuts and bolts of how do you go from like okay, I'm shutting the doors on this and I'm going to step into the this open door over here uh, because that can be a, a scary place, right? Like when you just say I'm. I'm I'm setting this aside and whatever security is there and I'm gonna step into this. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) It's it's unknown, but this is the direction I'm gonna go. That 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 can be a really tough place for a lot of people. So how did you practically speaking do that, Nadia?
1: (laughs) Um I don't know if I did it practically, my friend. I don't know if if that was something that was practical for me. You know, I I have felt like I mean, my entire life, I grew up in really deep poverty, like living in Section 8 housing, eating food from food banks, right? Like that level of poverty. So it's like, I haven't, you know, up until a couple of years ago, I had no money, right? When I moved to Denver from New Mexico, I think I had $200 to my name, right? And it really was that thing that I've had since I was a little girl that was like, I know there's something different. I know there's something different. Even if I risk, everything I have, there's something different. And so I really just followed that. I don't think it was practical now that I think about it. Um, but you know, I am a therapist and I had a full caseload of clients. So I wasn't just like, okay, bye. I'm doing this thing now. It was like very intentional closing out, you know, um, referring clients who didn't need, didn't necessarily need me anymore. Right. And kept the ones that did until they were ready to, to move, uh, to move on. And so it was, I would say it was more just this gut and intuitive feeling of like, yep, I have to do this and I don't care what it takes, which is, I don't think practical. I don't know if I'm that much of a practical person.
0: (laughs) Perfect. That's, that's authentic to you, Nadia. It's, it's great. Um, so, what what what's your what's the vision that you kind of have for um, yourself as a therapist going forward? What uh, what goal or direction are you wanting to kind of take in terms of working with the CEOs and and some of these higher level uh, humans? Uh, do you do you have like a specific vision? Do you have like a specific direction or goal at this point, or is that something that uh, is 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 yet to come to you? And and if you yeah. do, what, what does that kind of look like or what is it at this point, if you don't mind?
1: Yeah. So I do have a very specific vision and I have some really amazing, cool things coming up in the next year that I don't want to get too specific about right now. But what I will say is that I am I am focused on helping heal systems through the power of depth-oriented therapy and through nervous system work. And so I'm—I've kind of made a full circle, you know. And I, I'm not working in justice systems, but I am working with organizations and with school boards and um, with conscious leaders that are really wanting to make big change. Right? It's—it's it's not about just making billions of dollars and having some, you know, fund in an offshore island and just like living uh, a wildly um rich life right like that's not who i'm working with i'm working with people that really want to make a change and so i'm in the process of uh working with an organization and a university actually to develop a model that can be replicable for different organizations and businesses that want to begin incorporating this deeper um holistic way of being in the workplace So I'm really focused on, you know, doing being a part of a larger, I would say, workers movement, you know, because we spend so much time at work. Work is such a pivotal part of our lives. And, you know, work historically has been you show up, you do your job, you don't complain, you do it with a smile on your face. You work overtime, all these different things. And I want to help create a world where we get to bring our fullest selves to the workplace and we get to prioritize authenticity and well-being and people over profit. And so um without giving too much away that that's kind of the ethos and and where I'm going over this next year and I'm really excited to to begin launching it and sharing it with the public.
0: Hmm. You should be excited. I'm I'm excited. That sounds that sounds really cool. Um okay, final two questions and then we're going to we're going to head uh, uh to that finish line uh Nadia for today um you mentioned uh self-care earlier in our conversation and you were just sharing with us how um you know people in your position therapists are you know going to you know uh try to they go into like a rehab or whatever they're struggling with the same things that their their clients are struggling with and it's just burnout and, and it's kind of like the the hamster in the wheel right so what do you do for yourself uh, every day or every week or however you kind of look at self-care? What do you do for self-care uh, so that you are showing up uh, your best self every single day for yourself, for Mikey, for those people uh, in in your uh, sphere of influence?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I feel like a, a big part of the reason why I... Burned down my private practice from a traditional lens is because I wanted more time. I wanted more time for myself. I didn't want to be stuck, you know, basically working a nine to five as a therapist. So really focusing on giving myself time, spaciousness in my schedule is very, very important to me. And I understand that there's a privilege in that, uh, that I just want to name as well. Um, but spaciousness, I get sunlight and I walk every day, you know, I love Pilates um, and really just giving myself time to decompress, to do nothing and, you know, to be with my husband, to be with our dogs, to go out into nature. Like I live a pretty quote unquote normal life uh, in that sense, but having time to just be with myself every
0: day. Hmm. Okay. Um, Sometimes I ask this question. Sometimes I don't kind of in closing, but I think it's very fitting uh, in terms of who you are and the conversation we've had today. So uh, the last question I'm going to ask you, Nadia, is what sets your soul on fire?
1: Mm. Watching people be themselves. Like no matter how weird it is or how unique it is or like, you know, I just love that. Like when you're out in public and there's a band playing and there's like usually that like old person that's out there just dancing their hearts out and they don't care who's watching, like that lights my soul on fire. Like that, (laughs) that to me is like the most authentic thing in the world. So watching people be themselves.
0: All right. Uh, very fitting, uh, great way to end it. Um, first of all, Nadia, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast, uh, and, and sharing your story and, uh, just kind of, uh, you know, sharing your wisdom and life experiences with us. I I really appreciate it. It was an awesome conversation before I do a quick outro and, uh, we wrap up our conversation today. I just kind of want to give you the opportunity, uh, and the platform to share, any final thoughts, any final words that you would have for, for us? I feel like we had a very uh, in-depth, thorough conversation, but maybe there's something that you just feel like you want to share with all of us in closing. So I want you to do that. And then if somebody listening to this um, wants to connect with you, your story's resonated with them in some way and they want to reach out, or if they just kind of want to follow along your story and your journey, um, where can people find out more about you? Where can people connect with you? Um, I'd I'd love to have you kind of give us that information as well. So platform's yours. Then I'll do a quick outro, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. So uh, whatever you'd like to share in closing, Nadia.
1: Perfect. Well, I just want to say thank you to you, Quentin. You know, I, I've done a lot of podcasts in my day, and and I would say this is the one that has asked me the most vulnerable and personal questions. And you know, as I as I reflect on it, it's like this is probably the most that anybody will ever hear about me on a podcast. So that feels a little bit scary and intimidating. And also thank you for creating this and, and having me on here. And for anybody who's listening that wants to connect with me, or if you're interested in one-on-one work or organizational work, you can find me at NadiaRayBrackett.com or on Instagram at NadiaRayBrackett. And yeah, I would love to talk with you.
0: Cool. Uh, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> you said thank you. So I just want to say um, you're welcome. And again, thank you so much, Nadia. Um, all of you who are tuning in to another episode of Curious and Candid, I just want to say thank you so very much. I appreciate all of you. I value all of you. And uh, I would love to connect with you guys. If you uh, would want to connect with me, there's a couple places that we can connect. Uh, the first place would be Instagram, uh, Curious and Candid podcast. And then also feel free to reach out to me through email. Uh, the email is curiousandcandidpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, before you guys uh, leave uh, this conversation with myself and Nadia, if you guys would please subscribe to Curious and Candid on iTunes and leave a five star rating and review, that would be greatly appreciated. And if you guys are interested in holistic lifestyle coaching, you guys can check out my website, which is awaken training and nutrition.com. Again, Thank you uh, to all of you for tuning in to another episode of Curious and Candid, and we'll catch you guys next time.